0: Where did life begin? I mean, we think about our world, and it it's so special. You can, you can uh, go as far out as you want to go, get a telescope and go as far out as you can go, and it's just amazing. Then you can take a microscope and go down as low as you want to go, and it's still amazing. People talk about where did people begin? What's it all like? Where did mankind begin? Well, there's all kind of speculation. Some have said that it seemed that mankind began, came from some woman some, one, some woman, in Africa, that that was the uh, beginning mother, and everything f- came from that. Others say there's a region more that, that is the Fertile Crescent, the, the, you know, in the Middle East, Eastern part of the of the globe that's often called the Fertile Crescent around Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Mesopotamia. We call it Mesopotamia, which Mesopotamia literally means between the two rivers. And and so when we look at Genesis, we're going to see a description of the garden, and and it's called the Garden of Eden. God placed the man there, formed it all, and its four rivers are mentioned. We know two of the rivers. In fact, we can find two of the rivers on a map right now. We're going to look at it tonight. And so where is this place? And is it, was it in that area? Where, where, what do we know? We don't know. And so we're going to find out what happened to all this. How did it go? As we continue this scene and we look at Genesis 2, we're going to see the details of the creation of man. God formed man from the dust of the ground. That's verse 2, excuse me, verse 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and he became a living soul. And as we dig through the passage of evening, we're going to see the details of the creation, man's responsibilities, we're going to see what God tells him he can do and what he tells him he can't do, and we'll see how that fits together. Well, let's begin. Realize we're seeing the details of creation, we're seeing the top of God's creation, mankind. Now, remember, in Hebrew writing, we said this, that oftentimes there will be a little section in which gives you an overflow, gives you a big view of something. Then usually the author, whatever he gives the big overview of, a lot of times there's a certain detail he wants to go, and so he'll write a big overview, then he'll give the details of one section of it. Well, we saw this. In Genesis chapter 1 is the big overview of all the creation. He talks about the six days. God created the heavens and the earth, and he gives the evening, the morning, the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. He gives it all, then the seventh day rest, and we'll talk about that. In that in that summary, he just said, let us make man in our image, and then he says, so, male Female, he made them. Well, that's a summary statement because when you get to chapter 2, he then picks out what he considers the most important thing in these first six days or seven days of the whole creation, and that was mankind. And so he's going to give, chapter 2 is going to be the details of man and the woman. And, and if you only had Genesis 1, we would think that he created the man and woman at exactly the same time. Because it says, so God created man in his own image. Uh, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. We say, well, he made them both at the same time. But when you get into the details of Genesis chapter 2, we see no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't that way. So we're going to see how this fits. Let's begin. We get a little review as we start chapter 2. The chapter 2 begins with a summary of creation. Genesis 2, 1 through and 3 talks about the heavens and the earth completed and on the seventh day he rested. Notice what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And basically he's saying God created all the things he was going to create in those six days. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Now when you read that. And say that God rested, we understand that God was not tired, God didn't go, well, you know, it's it's tough, it's tough making, you know, six days, that's a tough lot, that's a lot of work. You know, the, the thing that I always say is, he didn't have to take six days, he could have just woke it into being in one moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and everything could be created at one time, but there's a reason, I think, for the six days. And then he rested, because he says he rested on the seventh day. We see that's the pattern. You go over to Exodus, it says, he told told mankind, he told the Jewish people under the law. He says, you shall work six days and rest on the seventh, for in six days God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh. So I think it's the pattern for us. And we talked a little bit last week about a Sabbath day and how all that matches and what it means. Then, verse 3 says, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. The word sanctified means to be set apart, makes it special, unique, because in it he rested from all his work. Which God had created and made, and so we start off at the chapter two with just a quick little review, and He says, "Now this is what He did. Everything's been completed. He set a seventh day and set it apart, and He rested." From then he begins to go with some details. And he says, Now this is the account. And by the way, this doesn't mean anything when you see it in English you can't really tell it, but there's some certain Hebrew words. It's called the Toledot. It just means that it's a separate little section. And so whenever you see that, you know that the author's saying, Now I'm going to give you some details on something. Well, this is how verse four starts. He's just given the summary, and he says, now, let me give you some details on something. And as you notice, he's going to give the details about the earth, the garden, that little section, mankind, and he's going to the details there. And so he says, now, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. And he starts talking about things, and and then he says he's got some trees and plants there. But then he says in verse 6, which we talked last week, that a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Without going into a lot of details, because we've talked about it for two weeks, but the idea that there seemed to be this cloud cover around the earth, you go back to Genesis chapter one, where he separated the waters above from the waters below, put the sky in between. The idea there seemed to be this cloud cover around the earth, a canopy that in a sense protected us. And and what we saw is at, before the flood, all, people lived 900 and 800 years after the flood, the very first generation was 300 years. It just appears that because after the clouds were gone and, and the, the rays of the sun began to hit on mankind, that we didn't live as long, and it got shorter and shorter and shorter. That's a speculation, but that's what most people believe because of what happened to the canopy and, and how people lived so long before the flood. Now, as we continue, we're going to see the six things that are listed here. This is, um, I, I think there's, are there not all six listed at one time? Yeah, there they are. Okay, the six things. We're going to see the creation of the male first, the place to live, the garden, we're going to see the description of the area. We actually got one and two last week. We just touched on one and two. Then three is the description of the area. Then the work, the responsibility of the man, the special command, and then the creation of the female to helpmate to the man. So that's what we're going to look at as we go through this passage. And we'll see all six of them. We won't get, we'll get all six tonight in the sense we'll get through them, but we'll get more details next week on one. Let's start with the first one, which is the creation of the male. The Hebrew word there, if you notice in verse seven, it says, "Then the Lord God formed man." And the word for man there is Adamah, which is really a word for dirt. It's the idea of the ground because he's going to be from the dust. Notice it says, "The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, uh, a living being." The word there is soul, and we'll talk about it in a second. The Lord God. Now, this is this is a title, a unique title. The Lord God, the Lord is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which is the personal name of God. And the word God is Elohim, the plural of majesty. So you've got the personal name and the title of God all put together, Lord God. See, uh, earlier it says, and God said, and God said, and God said. But here's the first time he says, and the Lord God formed man. He's He's saying, this is the personal name of God. This is almost as if God says, now I want to give you the details on what I did. That's how we might say it. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The word there is is soul. I think we have a slide. Living soul is the Hebrew word is Nephesh, which refers to a whole being. It's it's the inside. It's, it, it, we could say it's the person, but it's what really makes up the person that the soul. That, you know, man is is both material and immaterial. He's a material part and then he's the immaterial part, which is that soul. And sometimes in the New Testament, the soul and the spirit and those kind of things. Uh, in fact, let me just say this to you in the in the Old Testament. The word for soul, nephesh, and the word for spirit, ruah, sometimes are used interchangeably. In fact, you can find passages where it's talking about that. In the New Testament, they're not quite used interchangeably. The, the word soul and spirit in the New Testament, pneumata this word spirit, uh, soul, suke, we get psyche from it. They're not used interchangeably in the New Testament. I'm not sure why, or how it is, how in the Old Testament, but the idea in the Old Testament, you just saw a person and you saw the outside and the inside. When you get to the New Testament it gets a lot more details especially with the Greek language and it used the idea of the body the soul the spirit the conscience all those kind of things. Well, he says now the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground he breathed into him life and he became a soul a living soul. Very special. Now, we talked last time that each person is unique and special, made in the image of God. And I think that's, that's vital because when we start thinking about who's valuable and who's not, we live in a culture that values people who are uh, handsome and pretty and smart and rich and famous and power and all this, and, and they don't value the weak. And what you have to realize is that every human being is unique and special, made in the image of God. Every person. Every person. We see that man was created by God, formed, shaped differently from all the animals. He's made in the image of God as a living soul. The second part was the place to live, the garden. And when you look at that, look at verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted the garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now, he made this garden, this special place, and he put man there. Now, there's two trees that are listed uh, there. I, I think it's really... It was OK. We were OK. Two trees. There's two, two trees in the middle. One in verse nine out of the ground. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we're going to see that there are two trees that are there, two trees that are listed. One is called the tree of life. It's in the middle. The other is the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. Now, we're going to talk about this later, because when you get to the end of chapter three, After the fall, he does not want man to go eat from the tree of life and live forever. We're going to talk about that. What, what does he mean? Why does he say that there? Why does he put this flaming, this 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 angel, this cherubim with a flaming fiery sword to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden so people can't come back in there? Why did he do that? We'll, talk, we'll have to get to chapter 3 at the end and at the fall before we see that. But there are two trees there. The tree of life, which is in the middle, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, literally in Hebrew it says the tree that gives life and the tree that gives knowledge. A tree that gives life, a tree that gives knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. And we're going to see the details later because we'll get a little bit further down, especially when God gives the command to the man of what to eat, what to do, and what not to do. And we'll see all that. But all this passage just says he had these trees. He had all the trees that he could eat. They were pleasing to sight. They were good for food. The tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when you think about these two trees, and I think the next slide says, the tree of life, when you think about the tree of life, to eat from the tree of life would give life forever. So why is it that at the end of chapter 3, he says, I do not want them to eat from the tree of life and live forever. We'll talk about it. We'll see how it does. What, what goes on there? How does it fit? What does it mean? The tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were supposed to basically, this is a tree that taught right from wrong. Now, you know, we could say, what was special about the tree? Well, I don't think there was anything special about the tree. I think it was a tree that he said, this is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he's going to tell him in a little bit, don't eat from that tree. Because that tree teaches right from wrong. It could be anything. This could be the chair of right from wrong, right? Don't sit in the chair. If you sit in the chair, you learn right from wrong by doing what? What? Wrong. If you don't sit in the chair, you learn right from wrong by not sitting in the chair. Whatever it was, it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil and which man would learn right from wrong. How many things were there to do wrong? When this we get this first part, we ain't got anything to do wrong yet. He hadn't given him the, the prohibitions, but we'll see it as we go through. Now, we're going to get a little information. The third thing is the description of the area okay and notice verse 10 now a river flowed out of eden to water the garden and from there it divided and it became four rivers now wherever the garden of eden is there's a river in it and the river flows out of the garden and becomes four rivers that's what it says four bodies of water so four rivers now here's here's what it says if you look at verse 11 and verse 11 it says the name of the first river is the is the pashon it flows around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. And he talks about the gold's good in that land. And there's some stone and onyx and the and All that stuff's there. We, we don't have any idea where that is. People say, well, let's go on a map and let's find this, this, this river called the, the Pashan River. And let's find the land of Havilah. And we, well, there's, we can't find it. We don't know where that is. And then he says, and the name of the second river is the Gahan. And it flows around the whole land of Cush. We know where the land of Cush is, by the way. You know where Cush is? That's Egypt. So there was wherever the garden of Eden was first of all let's predict there's this garden and water flows out from it and and it goes into four rivers and one of the rivers goes to the land of Havilah wherever that could be one of the rivers it appears it says goes uh, toward the whole goes flows around the whole land of Cush which is Egypt could this could this river ultimately be the Nile river who knows then look at the next one it says the name of the third river is Tigris, right? The Tiger, Tigris and the east of Syria and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now we know that. We've heard of those. Now, let, let me show you a map that Mesopotamia, that, when we start describing this and you hear Tigris-Euphrates, what do you think of? You think of Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf, and you think of all that. And here's a map that's basically, I don't know if you can see it very well, but the, there's the, the you can see the lines and there's the Euphrates River and the Tigris River. It's a little easier to see it on this, but you can see the Tigris-Euphrates River. As you see, it goes down to the place called Ur. Now, it's talked about that East from Eden, he made the garden in east. Well, it looks to me like, and it just uh, show you some places that you may know of. Ur, Ur which is down at the bottom, Ur of the Chaldees. This is called the region of the Chaldeans. Ur was where Abram was from. He lived in Ur, and that's where he left. Ur went up to the north a little bit, stayed there till his father died, and then came all the way down to Israel. You see Nineveh at the top up there, where it says Tigris. There's Nineveh. That was the capital of the Syrian Empire. You see Susa, which ended up being the capital of the Babylonian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire came in. So th- these places are even famous. So today we can pick up a map and you can see the Tigris-Euphrates River, how how it splits off like that. And so wherever it's coming from, it almost appears that if you go down to the Persian Gulf where Ur is in that part, could that, let me just say this, could that have been the place... Where, where the Garden of Eden was, and these two rivers, two rivers, Tigris and Phratis came out, and could have this other river which went to Havilah. What, whatever happened to that river, we don't know. Maybe it's another river going somewhere, we just don't have it. And could, could that river come out of there and go down to the Nile, connect somehow to the Nile, which goes through Egypt? We don't know. But people have always speculated, where was the Garden of Eden? Well, it's probably somewhere... In Mesopotamia, between the rivers, was probably the Garden of Eden. What happened to it? Well, you know that there was the flood. And when the flood, the whole world changed, and a lot of upheavals, and a lot of changes and things. And it could be that those four rivers that came out of the Garden of Eden, that the Garden of Eden's not even there anymore. There's nothing, we, we wouldn't even know where it was. We couldn't find it, and maybe those rivers were changed, and the Tigris-Euphrates are still, we know where they are, but we don't know anything about those other two rivers. And so this is the area of Iraq, and, and uh, Iran, and Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, and, and uh the persian gulf and all of that and, and so today we could go to that week we can't find it and and there have been people saying we're going to go find the garden of eden well good luck and if you did find it there's probably that flaming thing out there you know saying can't come in anyway but i don't think we're going to find it i think it's all gone okay now the fourth thing that we're going to see is the responsibility what does he tell man that he's going to do uh look at uh, verse 15, here's the responsibility. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So it was to cultivate and to keep it. Now, notice what he's he's got to, to cultivate, to keep has the idea of the garden to keep it. Man was given a responsibility. Guess what? He's to do work. Henry Morris says even in a perfect world, as God made it, work was necessary for man's good. You understand, work is not part of the fall, like, oh, mankind fell, now we've got to do work. Man worked before the fall. He said, this is your garden. Take care of it. Cultivate it. Take care of it. Ecclesiastes 2.4 says, there is nothing better than that a man should find enjoyment in his work. Work was given not as a result of the fall, but as a responsibility of man as he rules and subdues this earth. Remember he put him in the garden, he was to subdue, he told man back way over in, in chapter one he said, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it, and he 's going to have to take care of it and so that was his responsibility. Bruce Wilkinson states he says, we may grumble about work, but it is a gift from God, and it is. And because of the introduction of sin into the world, work has changed. Work from a joy to a struggle. How do you view your work? Let's think about it for a second. Is it something that you hate or something that you love? Is it something used to glorify God? How are you doing your work? It's a powerful thing. I mean, most people, many people work and most people work... Uh, maybe eight hours a day or longer, some a little shorter, some a little longer. But people work. How do you view your work? Do you view your work as a curse from God and you say, if I could just get to the weekend? And by the way, I know people who are just dying to get to the weekend so they can play. Because work is not fun to them. Work is just something they're doing. They say, if I could just get through this work. Or do you see your work as... Uh, probably areas that God has gifted you in that you can be bring honor and glory to Christ and to do it the very best you can. Swindoll said this, the believer at work is under constant surveillance. People are going to look at us to see how we do our job as Christians. Because if they know you're a Christian, they're going to watch how you do your job. I told you all that I coached at Mississippi State for all those years, and then right before I went to seminary, I resigned, that I worked for a State Farm agent. This is Most people have heard this story, but I, I went to work for a State Farm agent, and he said, you can be the office manager, and he said, I know you're going to seminary, but I need your help. Why don't you work for me for about a year? I worked for him about nine months before I went on to Dallas Seminary. And he had two other people working in the office. And, of course, I'm the new person, and I'm having to learn how to do it because I've never done uh, insurance or anything like that. But it was amazed to me, because this guy was a great guy. He was a Christian. It was known he was a Christian. He was, the, he was the owner, the boss, everything. He had two people that worked for him beside me. Both of them were Christians. In fact, when I first came there, they all knew I was a Christian. And they all started talking, we're all Christians and everything. And every time, he would come up and he'd say, i got to go take a picture of a house. I'll be back in a little bit. And every time he'd walk out the door, they'd quit working. They would talk. They'd go get coffee. They'd run and talk. And then when they'd say, oh, he's dropping up, and then go back to their desk. And that was all the time. And I was amazed. And one time, I actually said, these were two women, so I had to be careful. I said, I said to them, I said, I don't really understand this exactly. Why is it when Jack leaves? Um, well, I didn't know how to say it in a nice way. I said, you don't seem to work very hard when Jack leaves. She said, Jack knows we're Christians and he's a Christian. He doesn't really care. That's how they justified it. He did care. So how do you do your work? To please God or to please men? Or do you do your job only when people are working? Do you do your job for the glory of God? Ephesians 6. Listen to this. I just want to read a couple of places to you. You don't have to turn over there. Let me just read this to you. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 5, and he's using the idea of slaves, but the idea would be workers. Be obedient to those who are your masters, who are the people who are over you, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Do what you do as if you're doing it for Christ, not by way of eye service, which means only when they're looking at you, as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ and doing the will of God from the heart. That's how you do your job. Colossians chapter 3, listen to this. Verse 23. He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. You do your job as if you're doing it for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Well, back to Genesis for me. But I, I, you just think about this. When we think about work and we say, oh, I got a job. I got, do the job for the glory of the Lord. When you wake up in the morning, say, thank you, Lord, I got a job. Thank you. If, if you need a job, thank the Lord you got a job and do the job the best you can. And let me tell you, if you don't like your job, find something that you like and love to do it. I mean, eight or nine hours is pretty miserable if you don't like what you're doing. Find something you like and do it. I, by the grace of God, I have always, always got to do what I liked. I always wanted to be a coach and I got to be a coach. I want to be a pastor. I get to be a pastor. When I worked for State Farm for that nine months, uh, that was not what I wanted to do for a living, but, you know, it was pretty interesting learning all that stuff about insurance that I'd never known, you know, and, and, uh, when I got to Dallas Seminary, I had to look for a part-time job. Guess what I found to do? I worked for a State Farm agent for my first two years. God was just preparing me and getting me another, get me a way to be able to go through seminary. So whatever you do, do it for the Lord. Do it for the glory of God. Well, let's see the command, okay? Here's the command. What does he tell him? Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man. Now notice, Lord God, that special name again. The Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Now this is the positive side. In fact, when you see the command, there's a positive. I think there's a positive and a negative. Let's look first at the positive. The positive, from any tree you may eat. You may eat freely. You, he, he basically said, see, the, gar- see the whole garden? And, and the man said, yeah, it's a pretty big garden. God, i gotta take up, I got to take care of this place. Yeah, yes, you do. Yes, you do. See this garden? You can eat anything here. Anything you want to eat. Wow. But then there's a negative. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat. Notice. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, the negative is you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the other trees you can eat from, but this one. It is the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. Realize from this man, man would be able to learn the right from wrong. Because he says, here's the tree that brings knowledge of right and wrong. Don't eat from it. If he eats from it, he learns right from wrong by doing what? Wrong. If he doesn't eat from it, he learns right from wrong by... Doing right. That's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man was placed in innocence in the garden. His plan was to learn right from wrong by doing right. What are the consequences of eating from this tree? In the day, he says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. In Hebrew... It's die and you shall die. That's what it means. And, and we take it in English because it's, it's got the double double. It's the same Hebrew word, die and you shall die. And so most people say you will really die. You will surely die. I think there's a reason he put dying, you shall die because I think he's saying to him, in the day that you eat from that dying spiritually, you're going to die physically. Because the moment they disobeyed God, the moment they ate from that tree, the moment they did wrong, they died. They died spiritually. And then years later, they died physically. And physical death is a result of spiritual death. And so the moment they ate from that, they died. And it's powerful. We're going to get to it in just a couple of weeks. It'll probably be two to a th- couple of weeks before we get to the place where the Satan comes and tempts the woman to, to eat from the tree. And and we find that the man is right there. And the man, listen, the woman is not here. When these instructions are given, she's not here yet. He is by himself. He has the instructions. There's nobody there. That he he, he doesn't look over and say, Did you hear what I said? What did he say? No, there's nobody else there. He's got the instructions. You can eat freely from any of the trees, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one that you cannot eat from it, in the day you eat from it, you will die. God commands obedience and disobedience brings death. The wages of sin is what? It's death. It always is. This is what happened. The Bible says that we that because mankind sinned, because Adam sinned, it passed every one of us. And the Bible says that every one of us coming to this world spiritually dead is through one man sinner in the world, and death by sin, death passed upon all for all sinned. Romans 5 12. We sinned. We all come in this world dead. God's command to Adam the man you can eat from everything but that tree. And if you do that, you're gonna die. And you know that God has given us. Uh, commands as well Just like he gave Now think about it um, You could say How many things Could we do wrong We could say Well are pretty good things We could do How many things could he do wrong Just one thing Think about that You could say Well that wouldn't be so hard Just only one thing Not to do You know Not, not to do Wow Well we've seen The creation of the male We've seen the garden We've seen the description Of the area We've seen the responsibility Of the work And the command There's one other thing And that's the creation of the woman, the female. We're going to end by just touching on this just for a second. And this is the last one. The creation of the female, the helpmate to man. And we're going to spend some time next week on what does it mean, the helpmate. But notice this, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone i will make him a helper suitable for him now you realize up to this point everything that god said after he did he said is this is what it's good in fact after the the everything was completed he said this is very good and this is the first time he said this is not good he said it is not good for the man to be alone it's not good and, and and if you just look at some poor old men, you can realize it is not good for them to be alone. Well, what are we doing now? I don't know where we're going to go. We have to have a wife come, come over here, honey. Sit down. You know, got to have it. So it says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will find this helper. It's not good. So far, everything's been good. But something's not quite right. He's alone. Now, there's a difference between loneliness and being alone. You can be alone and not lonely. But you know what he's going to do? He 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 says it's not good for man to be alone, and he's going to make a helper. And we talked about this last week. And the assumption is if you read that verse, you think, okay, what is he going to do? He's going to say, okay, go to sleep, and when you wake up, you're going to have something really good. Okay? That's what we think. That's not what he did, right? He brought him all the animals. We'll see it next week. He brought him all the animals to name. And as Adam's going, Giraffe. I mean, I got him, right? As he's naming them off, and when it's all over, what does he realize? There's not one thing to match him. Nothing matches him. In fact, when it says he named everything and then Adam, it says, but for Adam, there was not a suitable helper. Just something that didn't match. Now notice the verse, then the Lord God said, verse 18, is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. There's two words there. The word helper, and the word helper literally means the one to aid. The one to gives aid to an individual. Uh, the, the word sometimes is translated doctor or nurse. Sometimes. He's saying this is the one that's going to come to the aid. It's like this is the one that matches. This is the one that the man needs. And then the word suitable, now this is a little bit strange word. The word suitable literally means the opposite. It means a complement. It means one that matches. It's like you've you got to have somebody that's going to fit you, and you're this way, and you need somebody else that's a little bit different than you so that you match. And this is what that word means. It means the opposite one. So he says, I'm going to find a helper, an aid, who will fit him, who will be the opposite one, the complement for him. John R. W. Stott said the man and the woman complement each other. She's to fill up where he's lacking. They match. And it said that the wife strengthens, the wife's strengths becomes the husband's and the husband's strengths becomes the wives as they come together. This would be a person. Now, by the way, the way it's written when it says make a helper suitable for him, it literally says according to him. Somebody that's according to him. Because all these animals are not going to be according to him. They're not going to match him. She's going to be like him, but at the same time, she's going to be different. Do we all agree with that, that men and women are different? And no matter what the culture says, and no matter what the people are trying to say, that men and women are the same, and they just, you know, this no, we are not the same. We're not the same physically. We're not the same emotionally. We're not the same mentally. We don't think in the same way. We don't do things the same way. And God did that on purpose. And I saw a, a, a little video. Somebody sent this to me. It was pretty neat. And it was talking about the way men think and the way women think and how men think in this little box and how women think all over. And it's just an amazing thing. And it's so true because we've got, and I always teach this when I do premarital counseling. I say, we men, we put everything in our compartments. We got this and this and this and this and everything stays in these compartments. That's how we think. But the woman is the river. Everything flows together. And this guy's illustration was just everything's going together. And, 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 and men, we can, we think about one thing at a time. And that's our thing I mentioned it this morning I said it kind of In a, a joke But I talked about I was in my nothing box Because men can think about Nothing You know, have a nothing box And there's nothing in there And the woman comes up And goes What are you thinking about And we go Nothing Nothing I mean you know And, and we are And, they, and they're and going You can't think about nothing There's no such way But a man can go I I can Right That's how we can go The, the, the TV And we're going And we're going One after another And she comes in And goes What are you watching Nothing Right? <laughs> Why? Because we're not watching. We're not watching nothing. How can you get it on that channel? I'm not watching. I'm just, you know, I'm just here. I click. I'm just seeing how many channels. i got 76 channels. I'm going to go through every one of them, right? That's how we think. So when he made the man and the woman, he's going to bring this woman a suitable helper, helper suitable, the one that's going to match him. She's going to be different. And we'll get into it more, especially when we get into chapter 3 and what the man, you know, and maybe at the end of chapter 2 when we, when he wakes up and he's had surgery and and he's married. He didn't know that. He didn't know that was going to happen. He goes, what happened? Well, it was, I'm sorry, you had surgery and you're married. Okay. So we'll see that next time. At the, we've seen the end of the creation. God rested, set aside that special time. We see the details of the creation of man, in the garden. We see his responsibilities and commands. We see that if you disobey, disobey brings death. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Think about it. Disobedience brings death. Disobedience didn't bring, okay, 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 go sit down, sit down, time out. You shouldn't have disobeyed. No, no, he said, no, you disobey, you die. That's a lot stronger than a timeout, right? It's death. We don't always think about how damaging sin is. It brings death. The wages of sin is death. The soul of sin shall die. It's the way it is. So disobedience brings death. man being alone was not good. Let me give you an application. first one is realize who we are. We are made in the image of God. I mean, it's so incredible. Created by His hand, living souls. He breathed into us the breath of life. Each one of you are special and unique. God forms you. Psalm 139, He forms you in your mother's womb. He's still creating. He's creating each one of us. Unique and special. We're fallen because what happened to Adam and because we're made in the likeness of Adam. Uh, we're in, we're still in the image of God, but as, as my friend Ken Shepherd would say, uh, we're a cracked image. A cracked image. We need a Savior. And my hope and prayers that everyone in this room, and I know most everybody in this room, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your Savior. He's the only hope we have. The second thing is, let's obey God. And, and when we think about obeying God, two things. First of all, just obey the Word of God, because He's given commands for us. Just like He told Adam, or Adam, He said, here are certain things you can do. You can eat from all the trees, but don't eat from this one. We need to live according to Scripture, because He's given us information. He's given us truth. And we need to live by the Scripture. You realize that I read this quote the other day; it hit me. It said, "Selected obedience is not obedience, but convenience." What was that? I don't know. Is somebody leaving? Are they mad? No. Oh, it's time. Okay, let me get through. And Saint, one of the missionaries who died with Jim Elliot said, "Obedience is not a momentary option; it is a decision that you make beforehand that you're going to obey." So have you decided you're going to live by the Scripture? Specifically as far as let's obey God, let's do by, by doing our work. Whatever work we have, whether and, and for some our work is our job, and some of our work might be our school as you go going to school, and they give you projects and papers, and, and whatever it is, it, whether it's our taking care of our home, whatever it is, do it for the glory of God. Rob Iverson gives pro, four practical things in the area of work, and here's what he says to do, and think about this for work. Do more than is expected. Whatever job you have, do more than is expected. I've, always, I've known people that, that they said, well, this is how they told me to do. Okay, well, just sit over there then because there's other things to do. But, you know, do more than expected. Number two, be a self-starter. Figure out what to do. I mean, it's important. Third, he says, keep others around you. Keep, keep, I mean, help others around you. Help, help people. You're not just there for yourself. And then keep your promise and your commitments, promises and commitments Keep your word. Be a person of integrity. That's bottom line, and especially in the area of work. Let's do our jobs as unto the Lord. Realize who we are made in God's image, and let's obey God by living according to the word and doing our responsibilities for the glory of God. Let's pray, and if you have questions or comments, we'll, we'll open it up. Heavenly Father, what a great night. Thank you for these crews as we see uh, uh, what you've given to us in this, and we see the creation of man, and we realize who we are, that we're unique and special, made in the image of God, in the same way that Adam was made in the image of God. Lord, we know that we're fallen. We haven't seen the fall yet in the Scripture, but we know we are, and we know what happened. Lord, thank you for a Savior. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, may we obey you in the same way that you gave certain instructions to Adam. You've given us instructions in your word and may we live by the word of god and then lord specifically just as adam was given a job and to cultivate and take care of the garden you have jobs for us and we thank you lord that you've allowed us to to serve you and to live for you and to have jobs and to to be able to do things like that may we do the jobs that we have for your glory because you're the one that created us you're the one that leaves us here you're the one that gives us may we bring glory to you we ask this in jesus name amen Okay, questions, comments, anything tonight? I know we're just a little bit over. Yes. Well, definitely. She's saying, she's saying, since God knows everything and He does, and He works all things according to the counsel of His will, she says, "Don't I think?" And we all think the same. Don't we think that God knew that they were going to eat from that tree when He put it there, and that if He hadn't put it there, they probably wouldn't eat from the tree, right? That wouldn't be a tree to eat from. Well, I think that's exactly right. I think God has a plan, and I think the ultimate plan is for man to what? I think the plan was for man to fall. You know why? And people say, "Wouldn't it have been better? Wouldn't it have been a better world?" That if you put man in a garden and say, have a great time, I'm not even going to give you any rights and wrongs so that you'll never do wrong and you'll just be people and everybody will be happy and you'll just go through life and don't don't forget, I'll take care of you and here's the trees and take care of everything. Well, that's true. We would see God as the creator and the provider. But how do we know the love of God? The Bible tells us we know the love of God through the fact we see him as the redeemer. And until we understand that we're fallen, that the sin entered the world, and death by sin, and we need a Savior. He says, by this the love of God is manifested that God sent His only begotten Son in the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John. We would not actually know the love of God in the way that we do unless there had been a fall. That would have been great if there'd never been any fall, but maybe we'd never see God except as the Creator and Provider. This way, we see Him as the Creator, the Provider, and the Redeemer and the Savior. So that's maybe why. I don't know. I don't know because I mean He, he created the angels too, right? And He created Lucifer. He knew Lucifer's gonna fall. You know, there's in the perfect system that God has, and you know God always does everything the best. Obviously, the best system has sin and it has fallen. It has has redemption, has all that in it, or it wouldn't be there. It's pretty hard. Thanks for asking that question. Okay, <laughs> it's a great question. Yes. I don't know. Well, he may have understood. Maybe, maybe God's. Maybe Adam. We don't have everything. Maybe Adam went. What's die. And he said, You're not going to, you're going to die. You're going to die. Lay down. You won't be it's not like sleeping. It's not sleeping. He, I think he probably, well, Adam was probably pretty smart. Yeah. And nothing had died. The best we can tell, there has not been death. Because according to Romans 5.12, death didn't enter the world till sin came. And so until we get to chapter 3 and sin, there's no death. There's no death of animals. Animals aren't eating each other because we already saw back over that the animals were, were all eating fruits and vegetables. I mean, they're all plant eaters. And people were, they don't. so uh, there's, there's a change coming when the fall comes. And, you know, that's why I think it's so amazing that if you get to the end of chapter 3, God kills an animal. To give them the coats of skin, that may have been the first time they ever saw anything die. And they realize that thing died because of them. Substitution. It's powerful. Anything else? Yeah! Tim. I think it's a great question. I don't know if you could hear it, but he said, even though Adam only had one thing that he could have done wrong and still did wrong. Do we think that's really like a picture that uh, that just shows us that no matter what situation, we're going to end up messing up. even if you just had one thing, I mean, I've had people say, I wish I'd have been in the garden. I probably wouldn't eat that tree. And, And the truth is, yes, you would have. You know, if somebody came to you and said, you want to be like God, you know, he's holding out. The reason he did not want you to eat that tree, because when you eat from that tree, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. See? God knows good and evil. You're going to be just like him. He doesn't want you to. He doesn't want any competition. He didn't tell you that. If I was Eve, I'd say, well, why don't you eat the fruit? If it's that good, you eat it. But I think you're right. You're right. No, Listen, we've been seeing in my Sunday school class the seven last things in the book of Revelation, but we've seen all these things. It did not matter what situation God puts mankind in. Mankind rebels doesn't matter what situation. Even in a perfect garden. What else? Anything else? Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, what a great night. Thanks for allowing us to uh, study. Help us, Lord, as we continue to go through this and be able to put it together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.